Hey, I want to start with something a little bit cheesy this morning. That's not something I'm unwilling to do or be. I, lo- I love those ESPN commercials on Saturday mornings. You know, you guys, you guys know about those. I woke up the cheesiest coach. That's how I feel sometimes with some of my jokes or some of my thoughts. But this isn't a joke. This is a this is a, a serious piece of research. But you may not you may not believe that it's it's true. Uh, but there have been some studies in the past decade, too, okay? so it's pretty recent, that there is one thing you can do, one particular thing that you can do that could add years to your life. One thing. One thing you could do that could help your marriage, according to research, and one thing that you could do that would help and have a major impact on relationships with around you, and even getting jobs. And that one thing you can do, this is serious, according to research, is smile. Does everybody smile right now? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Okay, research says that. According to scientific research, doing it actually makes you feel better, makes you feel good, even though you may not be feeling all that good in the moment. 2009, there was a, an MRI study that demonstrated, they say pretty conclusively, that the brain's happiness circuitry, okay, is activated when you smile. Even if prior to smiling, you were feeling gloomy or sad or bad. If you're down, smiling causes your brain to produce those things, those feel-good hormones, those endorphins. We love endorphins, don't we? And research has told us this is really important. It even has talked about how that if you're willing to smile for a lifetime, it can increase your life. They did another study. Now, this is the one that sounds kind of cheesy. They studied Major League Baseball cards, okay, and they, from 1952 on, they did a longitudinal study, and they found that the, the width or the span of a player's smile could predict his lifespan. Unsmiling players lived 72.9 years on average, while players who had broader smiles lived seven years longer. I'm smiling more often and wider. Another study, 30-year longitudinal study out of Berkeley, talked about students in a yearbook, okay, with weird results. The width, again, of the student's smile had, could have been or was used as an accurate predictor of how high their standardized test of happiness that they issued, how high they would score on that test. It was amazing. So you don't, I don't know where you stack up. Some of you smile a lot. Some of you don't smile a lot. We're all different, right? But here's what the research kind of says. Under 14% of us smile less than five times a day. 30% of us smile 20 times a day. And kids, on average, you know what it is? Smile 400 times a day. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe the longer you live, the lesser you kind of want to smile sometimes. (laughs) As I get older, I feel more and more like Clint Eastwood, where things just don't humor me as much as they used to sometimes. That maybe that situation that used to be funny just looks dumb now. But I'm going to change that. Because, you know, it's honestly this feeling, this emotion that comes with smiling, this feel-good thing that makes you look good and helps you have a better marriage. The Bible has had something to say about it, too. Proverbs 17 and 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine. That even sounds scientific, doesn't it? That's what the Bible says. Nehemiah knew about it. He said, the joy of the Lord 
is strength. Joy. Two times the Scripture teaches us that joy is good for us. Joy brings strength and joy brings medicine. So why we smile or why we can smile or have something to smile about as believers is what I want to talk about today in the Bible. This series we've been in has been focused on the Bible story and try to breaking it down into manageable sections and, and trying to find, you know, the, the big stories that speak to all of us about God's plan. And last week we talked about a return to the perfect will of God. And I think that would make you want to smile. And after all the ups and downs, those Hebrews are, are those wonderful ancestors before us, the nation of God's people, though they were smaller, they, they finally got some things right when it came to the issue of worshiping false gods. As they were released from captivity, they went down to Jerusalem, over to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt their faith, they rebuilt their culture, and they stayed strong. Going forward now, Jerusalem remained centered on the worship of one true God. They didn't fall again into polytheism. There was a period of silence in the Bible that we don't know a whole lot about what was going on, but there's no evidence that they fell again to those ways. They stayed focused on God. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the culture of Judaism, of faith, and they worshiped God the best they knew how. Bad things still happen, but they got that piece right. I think it's awesome to see. Now, the next section we want to look at is going to be the New Testament. But before we start into that, I want to peel back a a layer and look at a section of the Bible called the poetry section. One of my favorites. There's six books in the Bible, six, six books in the Bible. I practiced that so I wouldn't, like, do this or something. Six books of the Bible, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and Lamentation. Those books, that section of books are called by most scholars poetry books. It's because they're made up mostly of of poems or songs. A lot of songs are in the Scripture. Or wise sayings, sometimes small wise sayings, sometimes big ones. And the ancient Jews would use these to sing, to celebrate, to share their emotions, their smiles or their sadness. And then over the many years since, Millions of Christians have also turned to this section of the Bible to find comfort or to find something there that could speak to them in a way maybe that wasn't doused in so much history. The Psalms are a beautiful place to learn to worship God. For example, Psalm 103 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Your version of the Bible may say, praise the Lord. That works too. There's a song we sing around here. We've been singing it for several years, 10,000 Reasons, by a guy named Matt Redman. And it's become an anthem for the church at large for the past decade since it came out. It, it resonates with a lot of people. And I think in part because it's easy to sing, but also because it's based on some Scripture. Scripture that encourages us, moves us, kind of makes our hearts feel lifted up as we're thinking about blessing the Lord in the morning. It resonates with us. That's because God wanted it to. And when you put those two things together, easy to sing and something you can believe in, it moves you in a way that's just easy to do. Singing a song makes it easier to connect with God sometimes. Our hearts and souls 
are part of what this section of the Bible is about. I love it. And so five of these books are sort of huddled up side by side right in the middle of the Old Testament. In fact, if you have a bound Bible, you can open that bound Bible up and probably it's going to land somewhere in Psalms. That's kind of how it goes. And that makes it easy for people to find a psalm. Psalms is literally in the center of the Bible. And the books of poetry came alongside of a long run of historical books, and they were written during those same periods of time with our OG people of God that we love so much. And they're they're given to us for a reason. And they're not just lightweight. They're not just easy reading. They're filled with deep theology, deep truth about God, and lots of lessons to learn. And they give us something unique, less about the straight-line historical facts and more about the heart of the people that were experiencing the history we've been looking at. Because, see, biblical history is much more sacred than any other kind of history. And it's our tendency to pass over it like it was just a blip on the radar. Oh, that happened to David. Or, oh, that happened to Jonah. That was interesting. Oh, there was a guy named Moses. Our tendency is to kind of move fast. But guys, I want you to remember something this this morning, and I want you to take some time to absorb this. Those people in the Bible whose names we talk about all the time, they were real people. Real people with real stories, real feelings, just like you. They had arthritis. They had headaches. They had bad days. They had good days. They had night times when they couldn't sleep well. I hate that. I hate when I can't sleep. Does that bother you? It makes me so cranky. I couldn't sleep last night very well, so watch it. (laughs) But these are human beings who felt things, and they felt the history we read about and we learn from. And and you and I can learn it from it, but they experienced it. They smiled, they cried, they wondered, they dreamed, they got offended with each other. And turning to those pages of poetry can help us feel our own ways through our problems in life. It's through the lens also that is inspired by God, so it's wonderful. And so these things are so wonderful to read and so comforting, and because of that, probably, Psalms is the world's most favorite book of the Bible, usually. That's what the research says. And because so much of the Psalms was written by a guy named David, about 75 of them or so, and because his life just gets dramatically played out in front of us, he is often considered the most famous Bible character I mean, beside Jesus. It's crazy. And so I want to pick out a very popular piece of David's writing, David's literature that was inspired by God, given to us from the heart of God, but also through the heart of David. It's very familiar to you probably. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is so good, isn't it? It resonates. You've heard it before. Maybe you heard it in the King James Version, and that version you might prefer because it's got some words that remind you of something wonderful inside. It's so good. 
And it's written by a guy who had a really full life. I can honestly say, when I study the Bible, I can honestly say I've never met anyone with the same kind of personal experiences as this guy, David. Here's just some of the life of David. He was a shepherd, okay? As a kid, he killed a full-grown giant man, literally a giant. He played the harp, which was sort of like a Taylor acoustic guitar in those days. He helped form a giant orchestra one time, 288 musicians, cool guy, prolific poetry writer, songwriter, but he was also a macho military commander officer guy, a lot like me. He became a fugitive of King Saul one time because of jealousy. And in his 20s, he had to hide out in caves for fear of getting killed. He would have gotten killed. He was charismatic. People rallied around him. Even though he was in the cave, he built an army. It's crazy. And he became the king of Judah, remember, the southern kingdom, at age 30. And he was an extremely effective leader. Jerusalem blossomed under him economically, militarily, spiritually. It was the best season ever for Judah. But he had his fails. There was that moment in time he saw a beautiful woman and he manipulated a a set of orders for a guy and sent him out to the hardest part of the war because he had had a relationship with his wife. And that guy was killed in battle. And that woman became pregnant. David married her. They had a son. That son died. That woman gave birth to another son that we read about also in this same section of the Bible named Solomon. He was also, by the way, an ancestor of Jesus. Not a perfect guy, but a colorful guy. That's David. Massive personality, I think. Massive success. And also a pretty massive failure for a guy with that much power. Yet, there was one part of his life that seemed consistently to be in the right place. And that's why we love David so much. It appears, as we read the scripture, we can know this one thing about him. Through all the stuff that he went through, he hungered to know God. Hungered. Ached to know God. He wrestled at times with peace with God. He celebrated praise with God. He just could not give up on God. Even during his times of sin, he agonized with God, and he wondered if God was going to turn his face from him. You ever felt that? You ever felt like God wasn't paying attention because you've been bad? It feels that way to people sometimes. But he, he kept pushing. He kept wanting to know God, this wonderful thing that you and I can learn so much from, if, just to try to know him. Couldn't give up on him. Can you say that in your life? That no matter where life has bumped you, you don't give up on him. And we know David's thoughts. We know what they are because he wrote so much. And The 23rd Psalm is, is attributed to him. I believe he wrote it. And it just explodes before us with emotion, but also some deep theological truth. And we're not going to get to all those things. We're going to look at a couple of things that are very important, I believe. And, you know, we turn to this often when we hurt when we're bewildered, I, I read this at funerals often. And so the question for us, though, is, is this psalm just about using when we're in trouble? Or is it saying something more? There's a call to hunger. There's a call to passion for God. As David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Lacking nothing. Shepherd is the right kind of metaphor for that era, but it works for us too because I think in general we know what shepherds do, what we think they do. They take care of a breed of animal that is extremely dependent upon the human leader, right? 
a leader that is far more advanced, far more capable. The shepherd is way more advanced than the sheep. And the shepherd provides. And if the shepherd doesn't lead them to the right places, they're going to starve to death because they don't know how to lead themselves. And Literally, because they can't figure out things, they would end up dying. They wouldn't know where to eat or drink or even sleep and live. So the term shepherd, when he says that, is very critical. This king is saying, if you want to know the truth, I'm dependent on God. Don't you love that when you see maybe a political leader that you think you like? may not be many of them. And they reference God and you kind of believe it. It means something. It means something to hear that someone has prayed before they made a decision. He would say those kind of things. And the term shepherd also could refer to a king in those ancient times, a king who provided and was benevolent. It was a common term for them. So the Lord is my shepherd is a statement, I think, from David, and it's a declaration of dependence on God. We have a declaration of independence as a nation that runs through our bloodline in this country. And for the most part, it's not a bad idea at all, but it's a bad idea to have to be dependent in our American culture because we like to be free thinkers, don't we? We love, you know, it's amazing. America loves to come to God, but America doesn't love to let God have his way in our lives because we like to reserve our free thoughts. We like to invent God for ourselves. We like to say, here's what I think God should be. Here's the God I would serve. I remember one time, a long, long time ago, as a young military guy, people would ask me, how could you serve a God like that? And I was young. I was so astute when I said this, though. I said, I don't think we have a choice. He's God. I don't invent him. I don't like everything about what he's done, maybe. I don't know. I'm afraid to say that. But I don't think we have a choice from kind of God. But as, as Americans, we like to think our way through those things. So David, when he says, he's my shepherd, he's pushing away his free thought. It, with us, you know, it's a positive trait to be a, a positive trait to be independent, except when it comes to one area of our lives, and that's relationships. If you're in a relationship, you have to give up some of that stuff. If you're really going to have a deep and profound relationship with someone, a companion, someone you love deeply, you're going to find yourself in a situation of dependence, if it's healthy. You just are. And you're going to learn to do something that's a wonderful thing to get to learn to do, and it's called trust. And that's what David is saying. Trust is a massive spiritual theme of Psalm 23. It's that tightrope I talked about that we walk on sometimes in life that we have to get through life and hopefully we can trust in the God that we have in our hearts. Can we trust God to lead us across the caverns that are so scary? Later, David's son, Solomon, wrote some things about trust. Proverbs 3, also in the poetry section, he said this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your your straight. He will make straight your path. Solomon was considered the wisest person to ever live, and he wrote some amazingly wise wise things. Even though he struggled to live it out because he was influenced by his proud heart and some bad wives. If you notice the Bible, it's always that bad wife that gets in there. And I'm not trying to say anything. I'm not trying to hurt. Start something, but it's often the wife that brings a negative influence. Just just read that, but don't bring it up. That's all I'm saying. But still in his heart, I think he was 
He had this wisdom and this love for God, belief that God was, if I were going to make a good decision, I want to do it with God. And I believe David, his pop, had taught him to push his heart toward God, to trust him. That's what I think. And I've often wondered how many of the Proverbs are influenced even by his dad, David. So here's what I believe I know about David's attitude toward God. David wanted to give everything he's got to God, all of his power, all of his sin. And I, I, it started, I think, with this profound hunger and this depth of hunger that led him to trust God. And I think that's pretty amazing that the guy with all this earthly power, all that talent and charisma would make a declaration historically of dependence on God. It's just amazing. He had a lot of earthly power, but he's telling us, what I want you guys to know as I write this down, I'm passing this on for generations and generations. I'm a king. I have lots of power, lots of things that I've done, but I want you to understand something. What I really need is heavenly power in my life. Guys, he didn't need much in life after he became a king. Being a king has a lot of cool benefits. You can live anywhere you want to live, drive whatever kind of chariot you want to live. He had an amazing life. He truly did. Most of his life was just phenomenal. But I think he learned early in life, early in life, even in his 20s, supposedly he wrote this, Psalm 16 and 1, that God was his only answer. Here's what he said. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Maybe, just maybe, that was came to his mind as he's hiding out in a cave. He's been declared an enemy of the state. The king, the king who used to be his friend got jealous of him, wanted to kill him. His influence was so strong. He was so charismatic. I know David had a mantra in his heart with God many, many days. Keep me safe. Keep me safe. You ever had that mantra with God? Oh, God, keep me safe. Help me. It's for us sometimes too. Lord, don't fail me. I need you, God. And so the better part of the verse is how David has decided, this Psalm 23, that God is his true refuge. He's made a choice. He's made a choice that it's with God that he's safe. See, what all of us want is to be free. I know that. To be independent. But you've got to know there's dangers out there. There's dangers that you honestly can't handle. David teaches us that in God, that's where we can find safety. Because sometimes the stuff we have and the power that we hold is just not enough. So he says in Psalm 16 and 8, I love this. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The right hand is that favored position. Ancient culture, even in ours today, it's a position of guidance and counsel and trust and admiration. And the right hand comes up in Messianic prophecies concerning Jesus, and it points to his authority, his unlimited, infinite power. Right hand. David said he needed God to be right there. So David says, I lack nothing. I have everything I, I, I need. And honestly, I've read that many times in my life, and sometimes I'm dumbfounded by it. Because I always need something. Don't you? There's always something I want. And if I want it, I turn it into a need. I can go to Guitar Center and need a lot of things. Babe, I need a new bass guitar. I need it for church. 
I mean, if I really don't need anything, I'll start inventing things, like a bigger screen television. When I was a fresh out of college guy, my television screen was 19 inches diagonal. Remember those? It was really big and heavy, 19 inches. I thought it was cool because back home we had like a 13-inch one. I was like, I'm rocking, Mom. I got a 19-incher. Well, that would be considered a failure today. So, you know, you go and you see 40-inch, 44, 50, and I remember thinking one time, I'll never have a 60-inch television. Got one. I turned it into a need. I turned it into a need. When you go shopping, you can always have like three things on your list. But as you walk through the store, you start picking stuff up because you see it, you feel tempted. That temptation starts to become a feeling of need. I was sitting with my laptop Saturday morning, working on message, continuing to work on it. And I heard these words that caused my heart to shudder. My wife said, hey, babe, there's a yard sale down the street. Can I head down there for a few minutes? I raised my eyes up over the laptop with fear and dread. I'm not going to say no. I want a healthy marriage. You don't say no to a time like that. So I said, sure, babe. She goes off. I keep being spiritual, refining the holy manna from heaven. Pretty sure smoke was filling up the living room. And I was just praying and glorifying God and keeping an eye on ESPN. It's a great Saturday morning. Not 10 minutes pass, I get a text, a bing, and it says this, running to the ATM. <laughs> and I went, oh, Lord Jesus, help us now. So when she gets back, she's got this cool antique teapot in her hand. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, we have a lot of teapots in my house, none of which you can use. But that one's a designer one, that's an antique, that's something else. I can never remember the names of them. They're all like, but they're very cool. And I'll try, I'm going to make some tea, babe, not that one. Okay, how about, not that one. So I get out a pot, you know, a pot with a little lip on it, so you pour like that. That's what I make tea in, because you can't use all those. But anyway, she got another one. Do I sound bitter? I'm not. And so she, she says, I said, oh, so I started feeling some relief because I saw the price tag on it. It wasn't too much. Five bucks, seven bucks. I said, so you got a teapot, huh? She said, yep. And later today, they'll be delivering the cow by truck. I said, you got a cow? See, I don't know. I said, what are you thinking? We don't need a cow, babe. No, it's a, it's a big wooden cow. We can use it at church. I said, oh, okay. Well, how much was that cow? like 10 bucks. I said, okay. I said, anything else? No. Now, none of that was planned when we woke up that morning. None of that. All of that happened because she likes to do things like that. And she came with some really good stuff. I'm glad we got the cow. You guys can enjoy it on November the 6th. It'll be awful. And I'm still relieved that it wasn't a real cow. (laughs) None of that stuff is what David's talking about. I know that. He's not talking about teapots or yard cows or any of those things. He's talking about the deep stuff of the soul. Deep stuff, deep inside, because he had all the stuff he needed, everything imaginable. One of the most common characteristics of our American culture is this overarching sense of dissatisfaction. We feel it a lot. And you know that one of the most difficult 
emotions or states of mind to maintain is simply contentment. David is a mysterious man to me. He could be very reckless. He was aggressive. He was out of control at times. Yet again, he hung in there with God, and he dug in deep with God, and I love that part of him. It gives me so much hope to study his words. And I think that the person of David in the Bible set a high bar for us, really, after all is said and done, because all of us are like David in some ways. Sometimes we live like kings, sometimes we're very poor, sometimes we feel like fugitives, we have abundance, we have need, we have nothing. That's life. But through it all, what we all need the most is a right relationship with God. God. That's what God wants, and that's ultimately what I need. And there's a lot more depth to the 23rd Psalm than I can go into this morning, but I encourage you to read it this week and read it slowly and see what the Holy Spirit says to you about need and contentment and even desire in your life. Can you say, he's my shepherd and I have everything I need? But I want to give you some suggestions and thoughts this morning that can lead us to be able to write some poetry like David did. Just some thoughts And here's the first one, if you're taking notes this morning. I want to encourage you this morning to increase your appetite for God. Now, how do you increase your appetite? Well, in very simple terms, I think you learn to fill up on Him instead of some of the things that you fill up on in your life that don't have eternal impact. Again, simply put, I think you just simply... Put an effort in to knowing God. You might say, Rob, is that, is that my job to, to, to make an effort? Well, sure. David did. He searched for him. He longed for him. He wrote about him. Sure, you can make an effort to know God. And I think if you'll make that effort, you'll know more than you knew before because God is always waiting for you to come to him. He's always responsive. He's as hungry as you are. He's as hungry as you might be in life, his massive hunger is to be in a right relationship with you. Psalm 63 and 1 says this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. See what the writer's saying? I'm going for it. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, you're my God. I seek you. I want you. I need you. I know that. Psalm 103 again. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And it goes on to say this. And and don't forget all of his benefits. Don't forget all his acts of kindness. Don't forget all the things he's done for you. That's a conscious thing. We talked about it in Bible class this morning. It was really cool about how do we remember what God has done for us. And some in our group keep journals. I think that's a great idea to help us not forget what he's done. That's a very wonderful, powerful, intentional way, I think, of drawing closer to God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. So going for God is not just academic. It's not just about getting a new, cool, leather-bound journal. It's about a heart thing that God recognizes. And I want to encourage you this morning, church, for those of you that have served Him forever, for those of you that are just getting to know Him, for those of you that are wondering where He is, I encourage you, seek God, but do it with this thing that's on the inside of you. See, that's important. 
You know, when I look out at you guys this morning, I, I see a room. I, I see a room full of people that I really love. Now, each of you are different. I know your personalities. Some of the new guys I'm getting to know. Chase and I got together this week. I know a lot about him. Scary guy. <laughs> but I like knowing who comes to church. I like that. I, touches my heart. Five different towns come to this church. That's amazing. Different personalities. Sometimes you guys are grumpy. Sometimes you're happy. Sometimes you're upset. Sometimes you're sad. Sometimes you don't know what you're doing in life. You're just human, just like me. Yet we're joined together by one thing, really. You can say it's a Harmony Church. Yes, in part, but that's not what it is. How we're joined together today is with our hearts. That's what God does. God turns my neighbors, when we let God move in our life, into brothers and sisters. You're my family. You get that? That's deep. That's rich. That's God. Joined together by this wonderful thing. That's because of God. And so when you come in the building for church or whenever I see you, my heart melts. I'm always hugging people. And sometimes it's creepy. I know it's weird. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be weird or inappropriate, but I'll hug people in the strangest way. I'll grab you by the neck and I'll be choking you. I'm not trying to. I just see you and I want you to know I love you. My heart's connected to you. So because you're in my heart, I see you that way. That connection is so important to me. Last week, some of you were very kind as you shared words to me of appreciation. meant so much. Some of the heartfelt things that people said touched my heart. And my heart is touched when I see you. I love it when I see you. That's your value to me. Your value to me is, is not just your talent or, or how perfect you are. Your value to me as a pastor is your heart. That's your value to God. He knows you're not going to get it right. He loves you in spite of it. And God needs to be seen from our hearts and as our hearts can connect to his. And as I try to connect my heart with God, he's never failed me. Because here's the deal, and here's what David would tell us. He would say this, when you seek God, you're going to find love. That's really what I'm talking about this morning. Psalm 63 and 1, the second part, he says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And he says this wonderful thing, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Psalm 103, for as, a high, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. Is that enough to make you feel some security with God? Some trust? He's not holding the grudge. That God's love, you know what all that scripture means? It means you can't measure it. It's infinite. It's way that way. It's way that way. It's way that way. You can't find it. can't stop it. As far as the east is from the west, that's forever, right? His love is, is that. And his love is better than life. That's amazing. Sin is the only thing that can keep you away from God. And God has given us a solution for that in Jesus Christ. So guys, I want to encourage you this morning as this week unfolds, keep pushing toward God. Keep trying him out. Don't give up on him. Don't, don't let 
The pressures of this world keep you from hungering for him and learning more about his heart. God doesn't go anywhere. He's always ready for you. And finally, I think David would say, when you get to all those places, relax right there. Relax in God. When you find out more about who he is and you see his love, relax in that. That's been hard for me. All my life, I want to prove my worth. I want to prove my worth to my family, to my church, to my friends, to the business. I want to make sure that people know I'm getting the job done. And all God wants from me is just to know me. I cannot control any of the outcomes of my life. Only God can. And so God would say to me, I need you to learn, just like David, how to be a sheep that learns how to rest. When you know your shepherd loves you, you can rest. You can lie down in a green pasture. It's a beautiful thing, an incredible thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside good waters. These two phrases work best together. Green pasture and plenty of good water. That's the secret of life. That's the secret of ancient life for sure. The land of the Bible was semi-arid. It was very difficult to grow crops in sometimes. And so shepherd and sheep were always traveling, always moving to where the grass seemed to be growing. And good shepherds would have to guide their flocks to places with enough grass to feed their sheep. So a good qualified shepherd in those days needed to know Oh, I don't know. He needed to have a map in his head that's at least a 100 miles square. And he would move his sheep from place to place and take them to places where they could pasture and enjoy the green and enjoy the water. He had to, he know, he had to know how to take safe routes because there were places that were more dangerous than others and more rocky cliffs and cavernous places where sheep could fall. A good shepherd knew all about that. Well, God knows all about that in your life, too. He knows the path that you're on. He knows the way that you need to go. He knows the dangers that are ahead of you, and he knows how to get you there. Do you hear that this morning? He knows how to take you where you need to be. The question is, can you trust him? Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I struggle, and I have to go back to him and, and say, are you really going to be there? Are you really going to be there, God, when I need you the most? He teaches me. But when I look back, I can see that he's done things I can't even remember, but the things that I can remember are pretty amazing. He has led me to green pastures over and over again and beside still waters. God is good at being a shepherd. I want to be good at following him. There can be dry and difficult places. Traveling is hard. It can be scary. I know. I go through so many scary things. We all do. But God teaches through all those lessons. And I know that some of you are facing some tough stuff. Ken's talked about his, his battle with this health thing that's going on and I know he wouldn't mind me saying he's had some long talks with God. God, are you sure? Can you take me through this? That's hard stuff. But the answer is he will. There was a guy here in this church I used to know. I loved him. His name was Tom. Anybody remember Tom? Most of you don't. It's his wife over there, a little lady named Dee. Tom was a cool guy. 
One of the first things he said to me, and I've told you this before, and I'll tell you many times again. We were talking one day, and I said, Hey, Tom, would you like to preach sometime? He said, I don't need to preach anymore. I said, What are you going to do? I don't know. Just other things. But I want to tell you this, Rob. If God's done with me, I'm ready to go. And I looked at him like he was crazy. You are? Yep. Any day he wants me, I'll go. I cannot forget those words. And I think his last words might have been, I think I'm going out. Something like that. Anyway, you get what I'm saying? God means it when he says he can take care of you. And David meant it when he said to us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's going to lead me to the right place. And that's what I want for you this morning, to know that shepherd in that deep and profound way. And guys, if you let it, life will teach you that lesson. Would you bow your heads? I thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you have gone ahead of us. You've walked a path that I can't even see. And you have carved out a way for every life that's in this room to find the perfect place that you have designed. Nobody in here, Lord, is unknown to you. Nobody is lost in your mind, God. You know where they are, and you're watching over us. So, God, I pray for the one that's struggling with anxiety this morning to turn that anxiety towards you. I, I, I pray for the one that is struggling to feel content to turn their life closer to you, to start to get to know you more and to learn to find peace that comes only from you. I pray for those of us, God, who are struggling with health and there are several in this room today. God, that your peace would flood our hearts and we would come away with a sense of power and courage that you have a plan that's going to be just fine and you're going to walk us the right way. I pray for that, God. You are our shepherd, and we desire to follow you. And Lord, I pray for that one person today who hasn't begun to take that step towards you, that first step toward being one of yours, that one God who still needs to say, Jesus, come into my heart. I pray for that person right now. And if that's you today, my friend, just let him come into your heart. Ask him in, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Be my shepherd. I'll follow you. He'll do it. He'll save your soul. And he'll make a path for you that is perfect. He'll do that right now. I pray you do it. In Jesus' name. Can we all say amen?